greetings, salutations, and felicitations to all you ladies, gentlemen, and everyone in between. Welcome to another episode of My Lord, That Depends. I'm your host, Morgan, and with me is my most agreeable co-host, Khalid. That's a pretty spirited introduction. Are you are you sober? Yes. What's uh, what's that in the glass then? Water. Like, why is it brown? It's it's mostly water. What's making it brown then? Certain impurities. All right, so 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 it's not water then, is it? It's Scottish fire water, still water. Uh, that's definitely whiskey. Some individuals may call it that, yes, but it's still Scottish fire water. <laughs> Are we going to have a rerun of your criminal exam from the first year of uni? Uh, you mean the one I nearly got a first? Yes. But look, this episode is very depressing and horrible. You heard the introduction music. What do you think it is about? Yeah, Mars, Bringer of War by Gustav Holtz. I mean, um, yeah, have you have you like gotten over your whole fetish for blowing stuff up? Um, uh, that, blowing stuff up comes much, much later. Today, we're talking about the history of the laws of war. So we're still fairly early on. This one is all about the uh, stabby, stabby, slashy, slashy sort of, sort of warfare. Uh, big booms and the regulation of how many big boom devices you can have come much, much later. Nice, nice. So, so okay. So, where are we starting then? Uh, the Old Testament. Wow, really, really. Yeah, yeah. They really, they, they've actually got some um, really early rules on how you can wage war in there. But before we begin, um, I think we should probably deal with some housekeeping issues. You may have noticed we changed our name since the last episode. Uh, that's yeah. because I didn't notice there was already another podcast named It Depends. So I've we've had to change it. Um, with some consultation with you. I don't remember if I did that. <laughs> yeah, did yeah. And uh, it was a pretty, in fairness, it was a um, a pretty wide open name the first time around. So um, my Lord, it depends. Definitely makes more sense. Yeah, yeah. We're rolling with that. Uh, next up, pronunciations. Now, I do not have a classics degree, but I will try my best to pronounce names and words correctly. There's some Roman names and Latin words in this episode, and I will be pronouncing those using reconstructed Latin pronunciation of the late Roman Republic. So while we normally say Julius Caesar in English, um, I'll be pronouncing it as Julius Kaiser. Interestingly, Kaiser, that word is where the German word Kaiser, as in Kaiser Wilhelm II, the German madman who uh, goaded his idiot cousin Nicholas, Tsar Nicholas II of Russia to go pick a fight with Japan in 1904. All right, so with that, let's move on to business of regulating war. Khalid, so how's your day been today? Uh, yeah, not bad. Um, I mean, I feel like it's about to get very bloody very quickly. Um, but, you know, I, I feel safe that you're, you're on the other side of this, uh, this discussion with me. You well, know, I'm, you're more the war type, I'm more the peace type. But, you know, it's always interesting to learn new things. So... My day has not been fantastic, but it's about to get a lot better because I'm going to ruin yours. Great, great. <laughs> I'm totally ready for it. Okay, so let's start with the Old Testament then. <laughs> so despite our best efforts, we are no, we, we're not extinct yet. And 
humans have been trying to exterminate each other for any reason, manufactured or otherwise, since they started writing things down. Humans are horrible creatures, uh, but there does exist some good in them. I'm not saying this just because I'm a lawyer, uh, but um, the more legally minded amongst humans have had a sense of justice and fairness and uh, have tried to temper the murderous instincts present in all of us with some semblance of morality. Mind you, well, there is, when I say semblance of morality, it really is a semblance, it's not that much. So I've got a quote from Deuteronomy, uh, and it states, when you draw near to a city to fight it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. (laughs) (laughs) But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. Okay. Wow, that's, that, that's... that is a nice two options right there. Okay, no, 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 no. Let's let's look at the, the two options. Option number one, you enslave the lot of them. Option number two, you besiege them. And wow. what do you think happens when you win that siege? I'm assuming that it goes back to option one. Whoever's left is enslaved. <laughs> wow, shock. Yeah, wow, humans um, are the best. And here's another one. Um for also from Deuteronomy. Uh, when you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails. After that, you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants, but you shall not sell her for money nor shall you treat her as a slave since you have humiliated her. Oh my God. <laughs> Let's unpick this again. That is, that is real dark. Wow. What, what's, the, what's the implication of the word take her to be your wife? I, I care not to want to know take her to be your wife. Emphasis yes. on the take. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the emphasis here really is, is the take. Um, I guess... This also is a start of, uh, however, you, there is some sort of uh, regulation in there. You couldn't okay. sell, you, you can't sell your rape victim into slavery. I mean, I'll, I'll eat my shoe if they actually followed these rules and didn't then sell their rape victim to slavery after that. Yeah. But um, yeah. Something tells me that they weren't the most uh, trustworthy of individuals, even if they had these very, very base rules in place. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank goodness this doesn't happen in the 21st century. Nope. We yeah. we definitely didn't see slave markets pop up recently where some lunatics uh, went on a bit of a rampage in the Middle East. Look, we're trying to make progress, but you know, some, <laughs> some knuckle draggers are probably keeping us behind. But, you know, yeah. we're doing our best. Okay, so this does evidence the existence of customs of war in some form or another which is arguably a form of non-positive law. Uh, Well, so some form of uh, pressure towards compliance, even though it lacks teeth. Again, Mm -hmm. thank heavens we have a way of enforcing uh, such laws of war today, where they're definitely going to pinky promise to hand over all the guys who've done a little bit of rape and murder in Ukraine, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, one would hope so. (laughs) Okay, so what are we going to actually discuss today? It's 
really an episode about the history of the laws of war or how you're supposed to murder the shit out of your neighbor without being regarded as a class A bastard. Being a class B bastard, however, is okay because it's illegal. Remember what we said about not equating law and justice back in the last episode? Uh, it's going to mm. turn up quite a lot today. Mm. But first, um, let's be clear that for the purposes of this episode, much of the law we are talking about is relying on evidence of customary law rather than written statute. This is because people didn't really write things down until the 19th century in terms of the laws of war. Because of the sheer amount that's to be said about this topic for this episode, we will only be looking at the ancient world. And that will be prehistory up to the time of the fall of the Western Roman Empire. That's the way the best stuff is. Yeah, um, that's where that's before. Uh, that's where pretty much everybody thought that in order to get truthful testimony out of a slave, you had to torture them first. Sounds fun. Yeah. Okay, so um, we'll start with how people actually fought their wars. And strangely enough, uh, as far as the ancient Greeks and Romans were concerned, honor was a major overarching principle, which is likely one of the first common threads of what can be regarded as a law of war, law of war which transcends a single civilization. Let's um, start with the Greeks. Now, the ancient Greeks, they found attacking by stealth highly unsporting. There were, however, occasional instances of them dressing up as Persians to sneak into the enemy camp to murder the said unsuspecting Persians. This was not looked upon very favorably by ancient Greek society in general. The ancient Greeks, they placed a pretty high value on open combat without trickery or deceit. Where, where I'm actually getting this from is the Greek works of the time. For example, when Hector in the Iliad, that's the Trojan War, was facing an opponent who invited Hector to strike when he was not looking, Hector replied, Yet great as you are, I would not strike you by stealth, watching for my chance, but openly. It's not quite a law, but it's um early example of societal pressure on observing certain, certain honourable rules in combat. Funnily enough, um, while the Iliad does have several examples of keeping things honorable they've also got it's all it's also the the event where we get the saying beware of greek bearing gifts and uh this this really is referring to the trojan horse which the greeks left at uh, before the gates of troy in order to bamboozle them another bit of the iliad which is interesting which shows us the uh ancient greek concept of honorable warfare is how achilles treats Odysseus. So at some point, Achilles decides that uh, he's had enough of this shit and fucks off somewhere. Throws a bit of a tantrum only for Agamemnon, Odysseus, and someone else to come looking for him. Now, Odysseus, he's not a soldier in the usual sense of the word. He's more of a, mm. an irregular fighter. And in the ancient Greek language, nouns are not just singular and plural. There is the singular, the dual, and the plural. So when these three turn up on Achilles' doorstep, Achilles greets them with greetings, warriors, except instead of saying using the plural form of warriors, he uses a duel. Scholars are not entirely sure which of the three he's not calling a warrior, but the general consensus is that it's Odysseus, because Odysseus didn't fight in the open, honorable fashion which characterized how Greeks viewed war, how war should be fought. And 
another bit about how they fought was also having combatants wearing something identifiable seemed to be standard practice at the time. And typically, soldiers would wear distinct clothing. The Persians could raise armies from their various satrapies, who could be divided into divisions, each dressed in their own distinctive colors, wearing sashes of red, blue, yellow, and purple. The Greeks, no exception. They, and they too also did practice conscription, and they wore distinctive equipment, most famously by the Spartans. Just to be clear, I have a very dim view of the Spartans. Are you familiar with how the Spartan helmet looks? Um vaguely but you know that's based off of you know historical artifacts and pop culture references but yeah it's uh, kind of do, flat do in the you, front rounded over the top pretty flurry i guess does your view of the spartan helmet look anything like the spartan helmets in that film 300 <laughs> yeah i guess <laughs> ah, that's yeah, probably that's... the one that most people remember no no that that helmet's not spartan it's corinthian okay Oh, there you go. I mean, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm glad they made a whole film around something that was completely inaccurate. And also, uh, I, this, uh, Spartans are very dim. I have a very dim view of them. Outright majority of society were slaves. The Elotes, these Spartaites, i.e. the Spartan citizens, were themselves indolent and viewed productive work like farming or weaving as something for the lower classes, i.e. the slaves. And consequently, they produce no great works of culture. Hmm. Uh, look at look at uh, modern Laconia in Greece, which is where ancient Sparta was. There is no Spartan Parthenon. It was just a collection of villages where the slaves produced everything and kept in line with unimaginable capricious violence. They weren't even that good at war. Uh, mm. Between 494 BC, the Battle of Sepea, and 331 BC with the Battle of Megalopolis. I know this sounds like a Power Rangers episode, but it's not. <laughs> uh, their win record stands at 48.6%. Athens didn't even need these slave-owning bums to beat the Persians. They, the, the Athenians did find themselves at Marathon. I could go on, but this is a law podcast, so let's get back to the rules um, of war to which these uh, participants adhere to or at least try to adhere to. So with all these talk about fighting openly, let's not get ahead of ourselves and come to any sort of conclusion um, that the laws of war in antiquity were half-decent. They were not. Murdering captives for perceived slights was completely kosher. Alexander the Great himself executed all Greek mercenaries fighting against him because he viewed them as traitors. Do you remember the phrase, you're either with us or against us? Yeah, I don't necessarily know who originated that term, <laughs> but um, it, it definitely sounds like every you know war uh, movie you've ever heard and or you know, watched on TV. The person who said this uh, would be pretty biblical if you were on fire. Bush himself, mm. burning bush. Uh, mm. anyway. <laughs> uh, so if you're a Greek and you decided you're going to pick a fight with Alexander and you got captured, well, you're fucked. Dionysus I, who lived from 432 to 367 BC, crucified all Greek mercenaries he caught fighting against him. Again, if you're a Greek mercenary, you should probably try not to be fighting Greeks or you'll probably die. As long Fair as you, if you, if you don't if you don't win, that is. And cu cu curious to know, curious to know, like, do you think that each of these custom practices in the way that they held their slaves and what have you, you know, obviously they were living in different time periods and impacted, you know, we're talking about, you know, over a century's worth of different civilizations here. Do you think that they impacted each other? Do you think the, the Spartans looked over at the Persians and the Persians looked over at 
the, the Romans and they were all like, well, if they do it, I can probably do it. Sounds like it's a pretty agreeable international custom, like a pseudo law. What do you think? Uh, we'll, we'll get there. Don't worry. <laughs> some of them learned from their, uh, some of them lost the waters, learned from the, learned from, uh, learned from losing, and did it to the, and did it to uh, people they beat after that. Okay. Well, there you go. But uh, the Persians were a bit of a standout culture at this point in time. Um, I believe it was Darius the Great. Okay, I can't remember who it was, but definitely Persian king who was the first to ban slavery. If you watch the Three Hundred, actually. It's probably the Greeks were supposed to be the bad guys, uh, not the Persians. <laughs> Everyone loves Gerard Butler. Come on, man! Can't 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 kill people's <laughs> dreams like that. No, this is this is this is a law podcast. Law is a career <laughs> where all your hopes and dreams go to die. Okay, this podcast is the same. <laughs> I told you I'm going to ruin your day. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Not holding any punches <laughs> or spears, I, I guess. <laughs> Okay, so uh, let's move on to the Romans. The Romans held the same ideals as the Greeks for the most part. Let's leave out a bit about how the Romans kind of stole uh, the culture from the Greeks. And they're still then they're still quite different people. And the Romans eventually kicked the shit out of the Greeks with a modern-ish thing called the professional army. Like the Greeks, the Romans had this idea that soldiers were fine, upstanding warriors who kept their word and fought openly without recourse of deceit, treachery, or perfidy. When Marcus and Attilius, two Roman officers, reported back to the Roman Senate during the Punic Wars... Hang on, I'm just going to roll this back a little bit. Do you know what the Punic Wars are? No. No, okay. this, is, this is new territory for me. So the Punic Wars were when Rome decided to fight Carthage, and this particular incident was when Hannibal was uh, kicking the Romans up and down the Italian peninsula. I believe at this mm. point Hannibal was in Capua, which is not that far from Rome itself. Right, right. So when these two officers went to report back to the Roman Senate and started, uh, I believe they were talking about um, ambushing or fighting Hannibal with, uh, you know, some, some common sense, like, don't go poke an elephant with a stick. Sneak up For on sure. the bastard when he's sleeping. Yeah, um, the elder senators, of course, the boomers of their time, uh, told them, "Our ancestors did not wage war by ambush or night battle, nor by feigning flight and then turning back upon the enemy when he was off his guard. They did not pride themselves on cunning more than true courage." So yeah, boomers. Mm. The idea of honorable combat was very much a part of the Roman culture of warfare as well. They really hated informal elements of fighting forces. Uh, Julius Caesar referred to the forces of Vercingetorix, the a rather important Gaulish chieftain, as vagabonds and robbers because they contained a large informal element of wild-looking Gaulish warriors. Similarly, the Romans hated insurgents and were consequently right bastards to the people of occupied Judea, who had every right to say Romani ite domum. Do you watch Life of Brian? Uh, no, I have. Well, I that this is me really showing my cultural literacy. No, I, I haven't watched the Life of Brian, which is terrible. <laughs> so the, this uh, this particular quote comes from uh, Brian, a particular story. He's he's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. Ah, okay. <laughs> he, he goes and draws some graffiti on a Roman statue that says Romanus Aeuntomus, and this Roman okay. centurion comes up to him and asks him, "What are you doing? Uh, what does that say?" Brian tells the centurion, 
Uh, and, and no, it says Romans go home. And the centurion looks at it and goes, no, it doesn't. It says people call Romanes, they go to the house. <laughs> and, uh, he, he corrects he, he corrects Brian by pulling on his ear like a secondary school Latin teacher um, in All the right. 60s and 70s. And, uh, uh, and makes him write Romani ite domum 100 times all over the walls of the city. Of course, the Romans, uh, Roman guards turn up in the morning and go, what the fuck? <laughs> and chase him off. <laughs> so anyway, back on, back on topic. Uh, the Roman counterinsurgency operation uh, in occupied Judea was very much a war crime party, completely unfettered by any sense of humanity whatsoever. You know, crucifixion? That's the kind of fucked up shit the Romans did. And it's horrific enough for an entire religion to say, yo, that guy got crucified. Took it for literally the entire sense of humanity. So the Romans didn't really do too many laws of war with any sort of humane considerations either. Mm. So we've talked a bit about honor and subterfuge, and this goes into who was allowed to be a combatant and who was not. It's pretty much a common thread towards how the Romans dealt with irregular combatants. And that is every single one of them are criminals who, who are going to be killed. Now, with all this talk about honor, it's not a common thread throughout every single civilization. Mm-hmm. In ancient China, Sun Tzu wrote the Art of War, where mm-hmm. I quote, he said, all warfare is based on deception. Hence, when we are able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must appear inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe we are far away. When far away, we must make him believe we are near. Does this sound like common sense <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's definitely <laughs> the way that I'm going to war. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'd rather win the fight and walk home dishonorable than lose the fight with my honor. But then maybe that's just my cowardice speaking. I uh, know. I, I completely agree with you. I'm going to sucker punch a guy. I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm coming home with my shield and yeah. uh, he, he's going back on it. So <laughs> yeah, that's what matters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. Um, like I said, this uh, the art of war is very much common sense, and it's widely studied, and it's fairly general. But then again, common sense isn't very common if you just listen to what I said about the Greeks and the Romans. We seem to have moved towards this concept of how war should be fought, and therefore this custom slash law of war about fighting honorably is is very much has been very much consigned to ancient history, I believe. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing an advertisement for an AIM-9X Sidewinder missile about maybe 10 years ago. It's the mm. uh, infrared-seeking, heat-seeking missile uh, with thrust vectoring made by the Americans. Uh, it said, if you're fighting fair, you're fighting wrong. So wow. very much um, the concept of fighting honorably is uh, more or less a deprecated law, if we would. Mm. Mm. Lost in time. Yeah, lost in time. Okay, let's move on to the treatment of captives. This is where it starts to get really dark. Yeah. Oh, we started off so brightly as well. Wow. <laughs> I know, right? It only gets worse. <laughs> I need so... to go get a coffee or something. Uh, I mean, Scottish fire water. <laughs> yeah, my, my drink is brown, but not as brown as yours. It's, 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 it, well, I mean, the glass is getting empty, <laughs> so it's looking a bit orangey now, there's less of it. Okay, so captives. Uh, let's start with the Near East. That means Persia, Middle East, Babylon. Anyway, the concept of martial honor does not carry over well to the treatment of captives. We've all heard the Japanese justification for their horrible treatment of allied POWs in World War II. 
in that they had no honor for surrendering and so on. Uh, we can only speculate what the justifications used for the treatment typically accorded to POWs in antiquity, but it's quite possible that this particular justification, that the enemy is weak and pathetic for losing or surrendering, probably has a part to play. Mm. There seems to have been little to no respect whatsoever for captives in war through most of history. Mutilation seems to have been common practice in prehistoric times as well. For example, in the Offenet cave in Germany, the skulls of 34 men, women, and children were found dated to around 12,000 years ago, showing signs of mutilation. God. <laughs> this sort of activity seems to have been quite popular very early on, even in primitive societies. You would think people being able to write things down and uh, preserve their bastardry through history would make things a little better. Uh, no, 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 it doesn't. Mm. It's not gotten, it didn't get any better uh, in ancient Mesopotamia around 2200 BC. The best the captives could hope for was slavery. This wasn't just limited to combatants. Most records of the time only list women and children as the spoils of war. What do you think the inference is? I don't even want to know. <laughs> well, the logical inference here is that, ooh, men, let's murder a lot of them. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a pretty um, unique thread. It's either you enslave what's left or you kill what's left. And I guess they took the best of both worlds there. Even if they weren't murdered, uh, there are some preserved drawings of the period that show captives being marched long distances with their hands and elbows tied or held in one long line of the next stock. Some were blinded so they couldn't run away, but were kept around to water the fields. Lovely. The practice of murder and enslavement as a consequence of defeat was carried on by the Egyptians. Around uh, about 1400 to 1000 BC, the Egyptians also, uh, they left written records of captured soldiers being beaten and tortured. The Assyrians led by Sennacherib, I, I don't think I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that's fine. I haven't actually learned that. They, they, those guys were just as horrible. And interestingly, they were also very fucking specific. Uh, in 690 BC, Senator Rib himself noted how he cut the balls off of those he captured and tore out Why? their privates like seeds of cucumbers. Why? Why? So many questions. He also cut their hands off. Other Assyrian kings like Tiglath Pileser I, I've definitely pronounced that correctly as well, repeatedly mm. recorded the decapitation or flaying of his victims. This shows pretty much the state of the law at the time that there, there really were none. Do whatever the fuck you want as long as you capture the guy. And then, however, there are certain bright spots. Uh, there are records of combatants being kept alive and exchanged as early as 1800 BCE in Mesopotamia. Be that as it may, given the treatment typically given to captives, the most logical interpretation of this is a pretty cynical one. You want your guys back, or you want Ransom to enrich yourself. You only keep captured combatants alive to obtain some sort of benefit. Then again, this is also probably one of the most basic reasons why we don't kill POWs today. Uh, not just because it's wrong. It, it definitely is wrong, but it's um, also because we don't want the other side to murder all of our guys they captured as well. Mm. Mm. Uh, moving on a little bit further through the halls of history, we turn to our old friends, the Greeks. They They had a pretty revolutionary idea, and that is... You know, we, we don't really, we don't just say, yo, yo, we'll keep some of your guys alive and exchange them later. We're going to have a contract. So assuming we haven't just lost all the records, which is entirely possible given how old they are, 
it does appear that prisoner exchanges with the Greek between Greeks was something that was written down and agreed upon. In 421 BC, uh, with the Peace of Nikias, signed between Athens and Sparta, which really was, it's called the Peace of Something, but it's really just a mid-match interlude of the Peloponnesian War, a bit like the armistice of World War I. It's not exactly a, it's not a courtesy the Greeks extended to other cultures. Between Greeks, however, they did, they did sign agreements where they agreed to exchange prisoners. Between, uh, however, when it comes to Greeks fighting other people, though, no such luck. The Athenians gave no quarter at the Battle of Marathon, some 70 years before the Peace of Nikias. And the Persians gave the Greeks no quarter at Thermopylae. Well, I mean, you watched 300, they all died. Yeah. Now, that, that bit's historically accurate, not a hell of a so. <laughs> <laughs> they, the, they got the important stuff right, I guess. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. Um... <laughs> Called the Greeks good guilt. Yeah. Uh, that same year, in the Battle of Salamis, uh, nothing to do with the sausage. Uh, the Athenians <laughs> gave no quarter to the Persians. Wow. Interesting that they kept it within their own state. Um, you know, although I, I suppose Greek isn't what modern Greece is today, but the fact that culturally they accepted contractual arrangements only between other Greek nations, and then they, they didn't do the same for anybody else. Like, you know, that in itself is like a state-sanctioned law something you know, very similar that you see today you know sometimes you don't have inter-jurisdictional stuff it's just you know what works between two people yeah, um, yeah. and uh, the whole uh, adhering to certain uh, contractual agreements only between people of a certain color that sounds very familiar mm, yeah <laughs> we definitely yeah, did wow. we definitely didn't see that in world war ii with the uh, nazis and the western at how they treated the western pow's versus the soviets yeah, yeah, for sure. Yes, I mean, yes. it shows. It's just you know, humans don't fucking itself. change. It works. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's um, it's just interesting that you know th- these historic legal concepts just kind of don't really evolve as quickly as you think. I mean, I think a lot of what we've heard, listened to so far just kind of shows that you know you can probably think hard enough, and a lot of this stuff probably still exists. Concept of honor in war. You know, the concept of like war crimes. What what is considered acceptable in war what isn't considered acceptable in war yeah yeah it doesn't feel like it's changed a lot um you know listening to some of this stuff yep it's people 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 are still bastards and will probably continue to be yeah until we finally go extinct (laughs) anyway keeping it light keeping it light (laughs) i mean we're either going to kill the planet um or we're going to kill each other It's, it's a matter of time so we need to go to space or, no, I mean, the billionaires are working on it and to leave us all to die here, I guess. <laughs> anyway, like all revolutionary ideas, some time is required before it takes hold. And the Greeks still murdered captives after battles. This was recorded during the second half of the Peloponnesian War on many occasions. This is Greek and Greek violence, by the way. However, this also led to reprisals against POWs by the other side. As usual, some bloodthirsty idiots on one side could well doom his captured brother by not keeping his head screwed on straight and deciding to go on a murdering spree against some captives. Alexander the Great himself, he continued his great tradition of murder and torture whenever people rejected his terms for safe surrender, such as after he besieged Gaza and Tyre. That's, um, by the way, this is definitely not the last time we're going to hear the name Gaza in this series. Yeah, yikes. <laughs> that being said, Around the same time, we do have some inklings from some people in power that murdering prisoners might actually be wrong. Xenophon, 
a Greek historian, he writes of Agesilaus II, uh, king of Sparta, that he would often warn his men not to punish their prisoners as criminals, but to guard them as human beings. And often when shifting camp, if he noticed little children, the property of merchants left behind, many merchants offered children for sale because they thought they would not be able to carry and feed them. He looked after them too and had them conveyed to some safe place of refuge. So there are some bright spots in history and some semblance of morality actually popping up every now and then. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting you say that they treated them not as criminals, but as human beings. And that kind of the fact that they see criminals as sort of almost human, yeah. subhuman um, is, is kind of interesting. And, and I guess that there are some principles, you know, in, in modern state state legislation that suggests that, you know, if you commit a criminal act, you lose some basic rights that were probably afforded to a lot of other humans right to vote. Yeah. I mean, it's probably not as extreme as, you know, you don't get to keep your hands, but you know, these principles seem to have stuck around for quite some time. Yeah, it's um, it's actually interesting to chart the uh, development of uh, legal history. <clears throat> we don't, we don't seem lawyers seem to not want to move very much, and uh, legislatures as well. Mm. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, but now let's move on. Moving on from murder, uh, the Greeks also love to enslave the defeated. Uh, for them, it made some sense because it's a highly profitable enterprise. Slaves were, as always, never treated well. There is absolutely no justification for enslavement, and if you disagree, you can fuck off right back to whichever vagina you fell out from. Mm. POWs who were slaves were very often worked to death, and there was no censure against such practice. This wasn't just limited to the Greeks. The Persians did this as well. When Alexander took Persepolis, the capital of uh, the Achaemenid Persian Empire, he found many of his former soldiers there who had been captured and mutilated. Uh, I quote from um, uh, one of the historical texts, some with feet, others with their hands and ears cut off. They resembled strange images, not human beings. And there was nothing that could be recognized in them except their voices. Alexander, of course, re uh, responded in kind, uh, murdering and mutilating Persians. This, ladies and gentlemen, is what we call an escalation spiral. We're still very much doing this, except with a few new extra laws, which may or may not be followed, and a hell of a lot more firepower. This far back in history, human rights, generally not really a thing yet, not even for a state's own citizens, vis-a-vis their own state, much less the captured members of other states. While yeah. there were individual treaties here and there, these are rare, shining examples of humanity, and in no way represent the way the ancients dealt with captives. Now let's talk about the Romans. Oh, fuck, where do I even begin? It's been argued that the Romans were on the cusp of industrialization by some lunatics. I disagree. No slave-owning society, especially ones who are dependent on slaves, would ever be able to industrialize because they'd be too damned lazy. However, what they did come up with was something called a standing professional army, which made them really, really good at war. The Romans also had a lot of lawyers. They just weren't that great at being people. So the Roman legionary, um, we're talking about post-Marian reforms here, not the subject of this podcast, but it's usually what we think of when we think of a legionary, was able to carry all his stuff and march 20 miles in a single day. I have no idea how they did that because I walk five miles in modern footwear carrying nothing but water and I start complaining to the point where if you were forced to listen to it, you'd want me charged with some sort of war crime. The Romans... They had fuck all in terms of laws protecting the rights of captives. 
the Romans frequently gave, gave, they gave no quarter. In the absence of a bloodless surrender, uh, which was occasionally offered to some Celtic tribes because it was generally too much of a pain in the arse to kill a lot of them and easier to just have clined tribes, no surrender equals absolute slaughter. It's a long-standing Roman tradition and was a thing even during the Roman Republic prior to the Empire, which, contrary to popular belief, the Republic wasn't really a democracy. It's, a, it's more of an oligarchy. This, these slaughters happened in, in Samnium in 311 BC, Leontini in 213 BC, Antipatria in 200 BC, Cauca in 151 BC, Corinth in 146 BC, Capsa in 107 BC. The Romans murdered every man and enslaved all the women and children. Of course, murdering, surrendering soldiers is still kind of regarded as a dick move even by the Romans. And like every society that produced lawyers, they found a way around this. In 49 BC, the Romans were besieging the town of Uspe in Crimea. The town was not particularly large, but it had enough people such that the Roman forces would not have been able to guard all of them if they were taken prisoner. However, the town wanted to surrender. Okay, Carla, let's play a little game here. I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm. You, you're, a, you're a Roman lawyer. I'm the Roman uh, general, who's, uh, who's there going? Eh, I kind of need to take this town, and they, they, they want to surrender, but I, do, I can't guard all of them. Can you, can you give me some advice? What, I, what should I do? And I, I can't murder all of them if they're surrendering. Right. So, I, I mean, I feel like. Um feel like either they don't surrender and we enslave all of them just putting it out there or we kill all of them anyways i'm just going off of what i've seen so far as the trend am i anywhere close to kind of what that roman lawyer said back in the day yeah, i mean there wasn't I, I don't think there was an actually a roman lawyer who uh, gave some advice on this but I'm, but you are you are right on the money it's exactly what they did they just went you know what we don't we don't accept your surrender you haven't surrendered we're going to kill all of you Wow. Brilliant. Yeah, it's it's kind of how they did things. <laughs> That's it um, me. The Romans were not uh were not exactly massively extra dickish for the time. Every the other people who the Romans fought did the same to them. And the following passage from Titus Livius's History of Rome gives us some evidence that the Romans were treated similarly by mm. people when uh, the Romans themselves were defeated. The Roman garrison of Cluvia in Samnium, after being unsuccessfully attacked, were starved into surrender and were then massacred after being cruelly mangled by the scourged. Enraged at this brutality, Unius felt the first thing to be done was to attack Cluvia, and on the day he arrived before the place, he took it by storm and put all the adult males to death. Thence, his conquering army marched to Bovianum. Again, Escalation spiral. Mm. And uh, of course, this happened in 311 BC prior to uh, the Maron reforms. And this was definitely prior to Rome becoming a military juggernaut. And of course, Samnium uh, is uh, where the Samnites are from. And you know how you, I mentioned earlier that the Romans learned some lessons from people who beat them. Yeah. Yeah. This, here they also learned something from the Samnites. The right. um, Samnite. <clears throat> the Samnites had this practice of humiliating captives by having them passed under the yoke, so to speak. This was done by marching them under an arch formed by Samnite spears. Well, the uh, Romans picked up on this idea and brought defeated people back to Rome for public display before either selling them off as slaves or murdering them. 
in uh, triumph. It's basically a big parade to celebrate a Roman victory uh, to the streets of Rome. Right. I don't have the proportion of how many people were murdered versus how many were sold as slaves, but logically you'd expect them to sell most of them into slavery because it's simply more profitable. Right, yeah. <clears throat> the Roman waging of war was very much a profit-driven enterprise. I'll quote Horace's uh, Epistularum Liber Primus, the first book of letters, where he said it was not advisable to kill a prisoner when he can be sold. Uh, thank heavens uh, that definitely doesn't happen anymore. We, Oh no, we've definitely moved past that. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> At least we've legislated against it, but yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, something we do as lawyers is uh, we look towards the writings of legal scholars for an indicator of where the law is and where the law should go. One prominent lawyer of Rome was Seneca, who called into question the employment of torture. He stated, The rack, the cords, the cross, the rings of fire around half-buried living bodies, the hook tugging, the varieties of fetters, the lacerated limbs, the branded foreheads, the cases of savage animals. These are displays of unbridled lunatic frenzy. Despite this, Roman law does not seem to have come around to that conclusion that torture equals bad. Mind you, Seneca wrote this maybe around 40 or 50 CE. Guess how long it took the Romans to start putting restrictions on the torture of non-citizens? Very fucking long. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, um, yeah. Give, give me a guess. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm assuming we're getting past CE territory before they actually started changing their ways. But yeah, we're we're, 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 you tell me we're a couple hundred years into CE territory um, before they started uh, going. Yeah, we probably shouldn't be torturing our non-citizens. That's crazy. I mean, that doesn't mean they didn't do it. They just went. We Mm. should put some restrictions on this. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know. One one. Um, interesting custom of war that it seems to have come out of this era is the treatment of the dead. Cassius Dio, around about 200 CE, suggested that the slain are deemed to no longer be foes, nor nor are hatred and insult to be wrecked upon their bodies. It does appear to be common to other Mediterranean cultures as well. The Greeks did this, uh, so did the Persians. Hannibal, that Hannibal, yes, the Carthaginian general, allowed truces to recover the dead. And after battles, was known to bury his own soldiers and the dead enemy commander with honors the persians seem to also have done this so as we close off this portion and captives it seems the only time people get treated well is after they're dead it's it's something especially because uh death according to cultures at that time death was in the end Mm. there appears to be some recognition that the defeated are people and if they fall in battle they should be treated as human dead uh, given wow. that there is some sort of regional consensus, um, I think it's safe to say that we found an example of some sort of a law of war. And with that, we're going to move away from combatants onto civilians. We're going to need a lot of Scottish firewater for this one, I'm afraid. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, targeting civilians. Usually, civilians are seen as a non legitimate target. And that is to say, that is to say you shouldn't shoot at them. By shoot, I mean you should not be yeeting objects at them, including shells, bullets, rocks, or arrows, or anything that would cause them harm, including plague-infested corpses. This is not a rule that seems to have been adhered to for quite a while. Yeah, well, I mean, like, well, you see it today. I mean, yeah. you know, civilian bombardment is just um, like one of the classics, El Clasicos of of war, even in modern-day combat. It's, um, it's, cra- it's crazy how we just haven't moved past it. Yeah, no, we haven't. Um, and uh, generally we seem to have come to a consensus that if there's to be collateral damage it should be kept to a minimum 
Um, well, yeah, in antiquity, there, there's no such consensus. Uh, I'm talking, in this case, of course, I'm talking about ranged weapons and indiscriminate bombardment. Mm. So before I actually start going into how this was um, regulated, I should probably start, start um, give a, some brief background about um, the development of uh, weapons. Humans began using spears about 400,000 years ago. About 50,000 years ago, javelins became a thing, along with uh, spear throwers. It's a device which you use to lob a spear. About 17,500 years ago, the spear thrower is a little stick with something like a hook on one end and a handle at the other. It helps you throw a spear. Apparently, a human can chuck a projectile up to 200 meters with the help of a spear thrower. Bows and arrows started appearing about 10,000 or 12,000 years ago. With the advent of ranged weapons, people began to look into ways to protect themselves from them. Around 9,500 years ago, stone walls about 12 feet high and 6 feet wide were erected at Jericho. These fortifications would only grow further in size. By 2,500 BC, or 4,500 years ago, some Mesopotamian cities, like Ur, likely had walls which were 100 feet wide at the base and could have been up to 60 feet high. Um, we're not too sure. The archaeological records records a bit spotty, but this is uh, more or less the best guesses we have. Uh, well, I mean, people back then didn't really have any sort of uh, precision-guided equipment. You can't just attach a JDAM kit onto an arrow and send it to the GPS coordinates of a military garrison. When you want Although to that attack... would be cool. Yeah, no. Yeah, I have an idea of something to build for Christmas then. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not doing that. That's it, definitely very illegal. <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> so when people back then wanted to attack a city that was hiding behind walls, they mm -hmm. would just indiscriminately chuck projectiles over the walls. Now, humans appear to have figured out how to attach fire to the projectiles for the intended such fire becomes detached from those projectiles onto other important things. Right. And, of course, they then happily employed them against civilians. Wicker huts and thatched roofs of the time were quite susceptible to flaming arrows. Mm. And I'm going to use a modern legal term here. The, uh, a flaming arrow is an incendiary weapon. This, right. uh, it's, it, an incendiary weapon is defined as any weapon or munition which is primarily designed to set fire to objects or to cause burn injury to persons through the action of flame, heat, or a combination thereof produced by a chemical reaction of a substance delivered on the target. This definition and use of such incendiary weapons can be found in the Protocol on Prohibitions or Restriction on the Use of Incendiary Weapons, which is Protocol 3 to the Convention on Conventional Weapons. So we've, we've, we've tried regulating them today, but back then, incendiary weapons, not regulated. The effect of a flaming arrow at the time is quite similar to a napalm strike, especially with all the houses basically being fuel. It's pretty nasty. Yeah. yeah. If I want to talk about the law on this, I will. I, I will also need to talk about the military theory behind this. Attacking civilians is is really fucking stupid. I'm sure you know someone who thinks that if you bomb a civilian population enough, they'll give up. It doesn't work that way. Even in the 19th century, one of the greatest military writers ever, uh, Karl von Clausewitz, I quote from his book on war. He states, "Therefore, if we find civilized nations, do not put their prisoners to death." Do not devastate towns and countries. This is because their intelligence exercises greater influence on their mode of carrying on war and has taught them more effectual means of applying force than these rude acts of mere instinct. Unfortunately, rude acts of mere instinct seem to be the usual course of action for military activities. 
And it took quite a while before humanity developed a common legal frame of reference to say that we shouldn't be doing these things. As such, history is littered with examples of complete barbarity inflicted upon civilian populations. In the 9th century BCE, the Assyrians lobbed firepots into towns they were besieging. Do you know what a firepot is? No, but I'm assuming that it's akin to napalm. Pretty much. It, it, it's, right. a, it's a clay pot with, um, filled with burning stuff. Um, it's a firebomb. God, we really <laughs> were always the worst. <laughs> yeah, still are. <laughs> um, the mostly wooden Athens was burned by the Archaemenid Persians in 480 BC. And during the first part of the Peloponnesian War, incendiary weapons were frequently used as a weapon of terror in a systematic manner in attempts to burn civilians out of defended areas. <laughs> of course, humans are bastards and clever bastards at that and figured out how to make the fire worse. <laughs> I told you everything gets worse. Yeah. Uh, Thucydides reported that pitch was mixed with sulfur and employed in the Peloponnesian War. Pitch is a flammable resin tapped from pine trees. It's quite flammable by itself. Now, if you mix it with sulfur and burn it, guess what you get? Sulfur dioxide. <laughs> yes. And if you breathe in sulfur dioxide, it's quite unpleasant. It's a fucking yeah. poison gas weapon. I mean, we're talking 9th century BC. Wow. <laughs> it's, 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 it's really, this is really, this is really early on as well. Yeah. The Romans were also bastards. As we mentioned earlier, Scipio Africanus used fire to end the house-to-house fighting inside Carthage once the walls of the city had fallen. However, in this case, I'm a little bit more on the fence on this in terms of morality and legality. Uh, this particular employment saved Roman lives, and it was a decision which Scipio may well have been justified in taking in saving the lives of the soldiers. But one thing that's been extracted from my research is that I'm really not aware of there being any laws or even stigma against use of incendiaries or other indiscriminate weapons against civilians in antiquity. So unfortunately, there is not much more for us to say about the targeting of civilians using such weapons until a later episode. Now, let's move on to using food and water as a means of war. Before we start, we'll need to define a couple of terms. First, the first word will be relying on quite a bit, is the word siege. This means surrounding the target and blocking the reinforcement or escape of troops or the provision of supplies, usually coupled with bombarding the defences with some sort of artillery, including trebuchets and catapults. Blockade. These are larger-scale sieges of entire areas or countries. For example, the naval blockade of Germany conducted by the Royal Navy in World War I. What puts these two in the same category is their utilization as a means to starve out the enemy in times of war. And when I say starve out the enemy, I don't mean starving their soldiers, I mean starving their civilians. Sieges have been used since humans started living in walled settlements. As stated earlier, the walls of Ur may have been up to 60 feet high. It's ridiculously difficult to storm without proper siege engines, which uh, were a later invention. You've um, watched movies where people run up to a wall and put put a... just put a ladder on the wall. What's if you were on the wall? What would you do? Kick the ladder down. <laughs> yeah, like you need a siege engine for this shit. So yeah, the next best option for the attacker is then to starve the defenders out. Unlike with indiscriminate bombardment, however, there are some written records from Mesopotamia suggesting that 
destroying Ahathas with the intention of starving the enemy's civilian population is regarded as a foul, according to the rules of the time. Now, you've got to remember that back then, most uh, food supply was being provided by subsistence farmers and was therefore uh, quite fragile. Despite there being some recognition that you shouldn't starve civilians, the rude instincts of humanity usually winding up trumping good sense. So even though it's a foul, people did it anyway. Yeah, it's a, it's non-positive law, so there isn't really an enforcing mechanism. In Sumer, around 2450 BC, Sargon recorded blocking enemy canals to cut off the water supply of a besieged city. He's not the first, nor will he be the last, in targeting the food or water supply of a besieged population. The Bible, um, if he treated as historical record, also records such siege warfare. Senator Rib, again around 690 BC, threatened Jerusalem and specifically warned the Israelites that they would die of hunger and thirst if they did not submit. The Bible seems to be okay with doing that. The Bible, however, is generally quite contradictory on the particular point of using food and water as a weapon of war. In Exodus, Deuteronomy, Kings, all these books of the Bible give instructions to fell trees, block wells, and mar every good piece of land with stones to make the land of certain enemies unproductive. Instructions to cut down their groves, i.e. their food supply, can also be found in multiple places across the Bible. However, Deuteronomy also states, I quote, When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. For you may eat of them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field men that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees which you know are not trees for food, you may destroy and cut down that you may build siege works against a city that makes war with you until it falls. There doesn't seem to be a common rule in the Bible that you shouldn't use uh, food and water as a weapon of war. In contrast, the Greeks did have some rules against doing stuff like this. The Great Amphictyonic League around 1100 BCE, which predates the Greek city-states, by the way, it's really the association of Greek tribes around um, Delphi. Their oath for joining the League contained promises not to cut off any city of the League from running water, whether in peace or war. This same oath appeared in the Athenian Ephibic Oath and the Oath of Plataea, where the signatories swore that when fighting fellow Greeks, they would not overlook those who are oppressed by hunger and shall not keep them from running water, whether they are friends or enemies. This is a pretty good starting point. Uh, where do you think it goes from here? I don't know. And uh, I'm afraid to know where this is going to go. <laughs> your, your, fear, your fear is justified. It gets worse. Wow. Shock. <laughs> the Cretes would regress into unrestricted siege warfare over time. By 350 BC, it seems that there were no more restrictions on the use of scorched earth and starvation. Cities which fell in Greek on Greek warfare through starvation or lack of water include Potidaea, Plataea, and Athens. Alexander the Great himself, if the city didn't surrender, basically used these tactics as, as, a, as a standard means of taking the city. By the time Rome rose as a Mediterranean power, deprivation of food and or water was recognized and a widely employed strategy. Certain scholars, such as Philo of Alexandria, question the practice of venting anger on inanimate things which bring forth fruit. Uh, however, by that time, the use of starvation and dehydration was already deeply entrenched in the Roman military establishment. In fact, it was also this particular tactic was also viewed as a military intelligence. 
Vegetius wrote that distressing the enemy more by famine rather than sword is a mark of consummate skill. It was a policy which the Romans knew as kicking them in the stomach. Julius Caesar himself gives us far too many examples of this. At Alesia in 52 BC, the Romans besieged some 80,000 Gauls who had insufficient food on a plateau. The Gauls, they decided to expel their women and children from their enclosed area um, out of their walls, hoping to save food for the fighters. And they also hoped that the Romans would have uh, the humanity to open a breach to let the women and children go. Vercingetorix, the Gaulish chieftain, appeared to the Romans to let to let them through. Our old friend Kaiser replied, um, what do you think he said? Something along the lines of, I don't care. Correct. He said, pity is a word I do not know. Wow. Basically, this meant the women and children of the Gauls were left to starve in a no-man's land between the lines of the opposing armies. God, Kaiser was the worst. He was just... Yeah. The worst. <laughs> it was horrible. Uh, he got his comeuppance in the form of 42 stabs, but... Yeah, I can <laughs> understand. Yeah, I, I, I can understand. understand. I can get it. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> um, unfortunately, such behavior was very much a state of the law at the time. No restrictions on the use of hunger as a weapon. Now, if you thought all of the above wasn't depressing enough, uh, it's not the worst of it. Murderous rampages conducted by those armies are recorded from very early on in our history. So let's start off with the Egyptians. Thutmose I, I pronounce that correctly, don't question me, around 1490 BC, recorded conflicts in Nubia where not a single survivor was left amongst the enemy. Thutmose III, um, one of his successors, not long after that, recorded sieges where, I quote, not a single of his victims tasted the breath of life. Around a hundred years after that, Amenhotep III recorded in his Nubian war that he made a great slaughter, not separating male or female. Ramses II in the 12th century BC recorded victories in which their cities were then made of ashes, wasted, desolated, and their seed had ceased to be. Now, let's unpick the uh, wording used here. What do you think seed meant? I don't think it was food. Well, you're phrasing that question. I don't think it was food. I think it was something way worse. Here you go, go on. What do you think? I'm going to say their future progeny, like the, the next generation. Bingo. Yeah, wow. they slaughtered the kids. Shock. So, Absolutely shocking. Got it. Really? Wow. Why? Just why? Yeah, humans are the worst. Yeah. <laughs> and other cases, uh, if you don't murder a lot of them, women were carted off as trophies of war. Ramses II did this, as did many others at the time. Um, however, there is, uh, from this whole thing about treatment of civilians in occupied territories, there, there, there seems to have been a custom or a law which emerged from this, and that is you offer terms of surrender before a siege takes place. And the terms are usually surrender now before we start fighting and we let you live, and if you fight, we murder the ever-living ever shit out of every last one of you people who offered these terms usually made good on these threats. Adad Nirari, again, I definitely pronounced that correctly, the Assyrian king recorded activities such as flaying, throat-cutting, and impaling of defeated enemies. Tilgarth Pileza, another Assyrian king, boasted that he slit open the wombs of pregnant women and blinded infants. All this happened over 3,000 years ago, and this trend carried on a few thousand more years. 
If the defeated population was not outright murdered, they were usually enslaved or deported. The Bible itself also records such a deportation when Jerusalem fell in 586 BC. It does appear that there is some cons consensus and arguably some law about giving terms. There does not appear to have been some sort of law about the treatment of civilians after those terms were rejected, and the victors would usually then visit unspeakable cruelties upon the defeated. One interesting omission from the sources is, however, the lack of boasting about war rape. Um, this doesn't mean it didn't happen. It may have been because these cultures try to legitimize war rape by other means. The uh, Assyrians had laws containing provisions for their soldiers marrying captured women. And there also appears to have been a systematic treatment of women as commodities, i.e. slavery. It's quite disturbing, and no attempts seem to have been made to stem this practice at all. And this is also something which certain uh, people in the modern era have tried to bring back, like, you know, ISIS. The, let's go back to the start of the episode and the quote from the Bible about offering terms. And uh, it's recorded history that there's a law on offering terms for besieging a city in the Bible. However, for certain groups of people, the Bible says they should be exterminated. Racism, again, the... I'm going to pronounce all of these all of these wrong. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the websites. I made the last one up. Yeah, I thought that was... Uh, <laughs> I thought that was... Don't remember that one. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, while the law on offering terms appears to be recognized at this point in history, there are clearly some carve-outs for certain groups of people. Uh, certain people, subhuman, exterminate a lot of them. Now... In terms of offering terms, the Greeks also adhered to this practice. In the time of the Amphictyonic League, remember this is still the Greek tribes rather than the city-states, they also agreed that in the event of conflict between them, they would not completely wipe out a member of the League, so you can't exterminate. Uh, no such not existed for non-members of the League, however. And one possible victim of this is the Mycenaean civilization of the Aegean Sea. They disappeared about 1050 BC, possibly as a result of the invasion by the Dorians, Greeks. We're not really sure because the archaeological record isn't uh, that complete. In any event, the usual practice of the Greeks in the event of a defeat of a city that failed to surrender was the murder of every single man and the carting off of all women and children into slavery. When Troy fell, Homer records in the Iliad that King Priam watched his own sons and daughters being dragged away before being bludgeoned to death with the body of his grandson. Uh, I need another God. drink. Yeah. God, share one this side as well. That's uh, me. Of course, some sensible people did emerge during this time. For example, Euripides, who lived in the 4th century BC, who tried to convince his audiences that the massacre of women and children after a siege was the epitaph of Greek shame. Uh, this didn't really help things, though, as by the time of the Peloponnesian War in the later part of that particular century, its standard practice was really just murdering the men and enslaving women and children. However, this uh, enslavement only happened when the slave markets were not that full, because it, it would then cost them money to enslave people, and so they'll just kill them. The Greeks recognized and accepted the use of rape as a weapon of war. It was a common practice, for example, in the Iliad. Nestor exported his fellow Greeks, 
let no man be urgent to take the way homeward until he has lain in bed with the wife of a Trojan. It's a pretty despicable state of affairs. And while rape in times of peace was definitely a crime, war rape? No, it wasn't. And there doesn't seem to have been a, a law, common law of war regulating this sort of shit. However, there is a particular standout from this time, and that was uh, Alexander the Great, who allegedly refused to rape the captured daughters of enemy leaders, which was common practice at the time for a victorious leader to do. There is, however, some historical evidence suggests that Alexander was gay, which could explain this, but this isn't a confirmed bit of history, so jury's still out on that. Clearly, the Greeks had little to no compunctions about the use of rape as a weapon of war. The Romans, now, they also adhered to the whole offering surrender before laying siege rule. They were actually quite generous. Usually, if there was a negotiated surrender, they would take some hostages of a noble or royal stock as a guarantee of peace. This practice of taking hostages was very much a law which the Romans adhered to and was undergirded by a concept known as fides publica populi romani, which translates to trust towards the Roman state. In the Roman War of the Etruscans early on in Rome's history, the Romans concluded a treaty where they gave hostages to the Etruscan king. One hostage escaped and returned to Rome. And what do you think the Romans did? You tell me, Morgan. You you tell me what these disgusting Romans did. They gave the hostage the... right back. Wow. Because wow. Uh, I mean, it's a uh, trust towards a Roman state. We made a deal. If, you, if we say we'll give you a hostage, you get to keep the hostage. Wow, that's... That's actually shocking. That is, I'm pleasantly surprised. And it was through this return of the hostages that peace was guaranteed between Rome and the Etruscans. Individual Romans were also known to honor this particular legal concept. Have you heard of um, Marcus Attilius Regulus? Yes. Yes, I actually have. What's he famous for? Badass name, by the way. Yeah, very badass name. Um... Uh, he was very famous for um, fighting in Carthage, right? Yeah, he's yeah. like a um, of my very limited uh, historic knowledge of Roman combat. Um, I know the fact that he was like some. Uh, wasn't he like murdered or something? Oh yeah, he Carthage. Was, yeah, he was. He, he was murdered by Carthage. But do you do you know why he got murdered? <laughs> No, no, my uh, no, no, my, <laughs> my 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 memory fails me. So he was a he was he was a Roman officer. He was captured during one of the wars of Carthage, and um, the Carthaginians allowed him to leave Carthage to go back to Rome to convince the Roman Senate not to continue fighting. Uh, Mister Regulus went to the Senate and did his damnedest to convince the Senate to keep fighting. We're going to win. Just keep killing the Carthaginians. And obviously, after he does this, obviously Carthage knew about this. And if he went back, he was going to get murdered. But he did promise that he was going to go back. Scout's honor. He fucked off right back to Carthage, where he was promptly murdered. Nice. Nice. I knew he died at some point. <laughs> yeah. A Roman honor. Right. Yeah. Laws of war. Uh, you got you to keep your word. That being said, this practice of taking hostages and honourable conduct did come back to bite the Romans in the bum. During the reign of Augustus Caesar, the Romans had a hostage from a Germanic king. His name was Arminius. 
we don't actually know what uh, Arminius's real name is, just that Arminius was the name the Romans gave to him. Uh, Arminius was given as a hostage at a very young age and was very, very Romanized. His brother as well, by the way. When sin and uh, when he got a bit older, he served in the Roman army, and he was then sent to his homeland, Germania, to pacify some local tribes. I say pacify; that, that, that's a euphemism. It, it means he is sent to butcher them until they stop resisting. So he then conspired, turned on the Romans, and led the Germanic tribes in the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest, which checked Roman expansion to the north by absolutely fucking three entire legions, whose legion numbers were never resurrected thereafter, because those three numbers then became unlucky numbers to the Romans. As with all laws, uh, this, with uh, hostages in particular, <clears throat> they actually could engage in some form of enforcement. Where a treaty was broken, these, hostage, these hostages generally got buggered, some of them possibly quite literally. While we don't know what happened in every instance, we do know of some. When the Romans feared the Goths were about to rebel in 378 CE, hundreds of Gothic children who were held in hostages in various Roman cities were called to city squares and massacred. Now, all that is if there was a negotiated surrender. Remember, we're still talking about the law of war about offering terms of surrender. If no negotiated surrender took place, the Roman war machine marches into action and lays waste to the enemy. They even had a verb for it. The, the, the words diripio, it means I tear apart or I mangle. The infinitive form of that verb would be diripere. The Romans did this to a very, very long list of cities, which I will not list out. This approach was uh, recorded in Scipio Africanus's instructions in the year 206 at the siege of Illyrgia to avenge the slaughter of his comrades. Livius recorded of the massacre at Illyrgia it was in truth evident that the city had been attacked out of anger and hatred. No one thought of taking men alive. No one thought of booty, although every place was open for plunder. They slaughtered the unarmed and armed alike, women as well as men. Cruel anger went so far as to slay infants. Then they threw firebrands into houses and demolished what could not be consumed by the flames. So delighted were they to destroy even the traces of the city and blot out the memory of their enemy's abode. The Romans, unfortunately, did have some rather genocidal tendencies and displayed them in full by largely exterminating Gaulish civilization. There is no clear evidence for there to have been a law against such wanton destruction at the time, and this systematic genocide, which it's not something that humanity would seek to control until much more recently in our history, in terms of the law here, given the pretty low bar, the only way to go is up. So for once, I'm actually going to say it gets better. God, I was I was about to lose hope. <laughs> I was about to lose hope. Not 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 for a very long time though, I have to say. <laughs> Better late than never. Yeah. Right, let's move on to loot and booty and the destruction of property. One big reason why going to give your neighbor a solid wallop of the super bonker nine thousand is a great idea so you can take a shit. In civilization, we usually call that robbery, and it's super illegal. This was the case uh, in ancient society as well. The Code of Hammurabi, which dates from around 1750 BCE, prescribes death as a punishment for robbery. It's a bit harsh, but I guess um, it just tells us that it's illegal. At that time, as, as usual, it's a bit different in war. In antiquity, robbing the vanquished was completely normal and there were no rules prohibiting the taking or destruction of property. 
The law did, however, concern itself with the division of nicked goods. There are two justifications for the existence of the legal principles, uh, which emerged out of this time in relation to the splitting of the booty. First, it was that the victorious soldiers would get their fair rewards for fighting. And second, it was that the troops would continue to fight and not stop to do a little village pillage on the side while ignoring a military objective. The only people who actually did place limits on war robbery were the Persians, who recognized that such pillaging was counterproductive in terms of securing the acquiescence of the vanquished to their new ruler. Remember, I told you earlier that the Persians were actually really fucking progressive for the time. For example, the Persian kings Cyrus and Darius were known for their protection of the religious sites of the conquered, even if they were of different faiths. The Bible notes that Cyrus sent back 5,400 gold and silver vessels from the original temple that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen. This is, however, not common to all Persians. Again, every culture has its bastards. Cambyses, when he finally beat Egypt, went to Sais and burned the mummy of Amasis. He then went to Memphis and slew Apis, the sacred calf, and mocked the Egyptians' religions. So imagine this. You, um, you beat some guys at war, and you just you you don't you don't just go okay I've won you just uh, you guys now you guys now have to listen to me no 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 you're going to go to go to find their religious sites find their sacred cow kill it and make fun of them for having a sacred wow. cow it's not um the the humane treatment and progressive ideas of certain Persian kings is, is definitely not common to all Persian kings that being said um other people didn't quite have these bright spots. Everybody else just went, eh, whatever. We win, you lose, we take your shit, or we destroy it. Speaking of the Bible, sometimes uh, the destruction of property was mandated by divine law. In Exodus, it is stated, ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. Bear in mind that religious items were generally made of precious metals and were actually quite valuable. However, these items fell foul of the Israelite prescription against idolatry and were therefore an affront to their god and had to be destroyed. The Bible also evidences uh, the practice of looting in Deuteronomy. It states that if warfare was undertaken against peoples and they are subdued, after all the males have been murdered, then the women and the little ones, the cattle and everything else in the city, all its spoil you shall take as booty for yourselves. Damn it, it really sucked to be a woman back then. I'd very much rather be murdered. Yeah, yeah. God, not a lot of options. Yeah. Uh, Bible, the Bible itself also specifies, has um, laws on the distribution of the booty. For example, in the Book of Numbers, it states, Then the Lord told Moses, Take an inventory of the booty that was taken in the battle, both of humans and of animals. Then you, Eleazar the priest, and the leaders of the fathers of the community are to divide the booty between the warriors who went to war and the rest of the community. After this, you are to exact a tribute for the Lord from the soldiers who went to war, consisting of the tribute earned by one person out of every 500, whether from the people, cattle, donkeys, or flocks. You are to take half their share and give it to Eleazar the priest as a raised offering to the Lord. Then take half the share of the Israelis, one drawn out of every 50, cattle, donkeys, flocks, and from every animal, then give to the defendants of Levi, who maintain the service of the Lord's tent. So there are actually some laws at play here, and um, I'm not quite sure they're laws of war, though, because the law, 
didn't quite care about the interests of the defeated, only the interests of the conquerors, and that is maintaining good discipline in the army. Okay, so let's send to the Greeks. With the regard to cultural property, the Greeks actually have pretty strict laws about not, not fucking it up. For example, the Athenian general Alcibiades, he was stripped of his command because his army defaced the religious statues. By the way, are you have you actually seen any ancient graffiti? No, I haven't. I'm assuming it's just like blood splatter on a wall. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. Go go have a look. Go, go Google it. Uh, there's there's um preserved graffiti of uh, dicks drawn on walls in Pompeii. Nice. Nice. <laughs> we don't fucking change. Oh, Wow, it's crazy. <laughs> so really? I'm, I'm just imagining a bunch of religious statues with dicks drawn all over them. <sighs> that is crazy. <laughs> anyway, so um, there, were, there were also further laws on uh, the defacement of uh, cultural property made by way of treaty, such as in the Peace of Nicaeus, which I mentioned earlier, which guaranteed security, security to Pan-Hellenic temples, so Greek temples. Despite this, some temples were still attacked, as a rule which depended upon the largesse of the conqueror is well nigh impossible to enforce. When it came to robbery of personal property, all bets were off. Aristotle argued that war is strictly a means of acquisition. Plato suggested that the need to acquire material goods was the origin of war. Xenophon and Alexander the Great recognized looting after a conflict as being in accordance with the laws of war. To quote Xenophon, for the law among all people is eternal, that when a city is captured by enemies, both the bodies of those in the city and their goods belong to those who capture it. The Greeks, like the Israelites, had rules on the distribution of booty. Soldiers had to hand in whatever they looted for fair distribution. At a higher level, treaties between Cretan cities set out how to divide loot taken in joint operations. The Romans, in theory, had a similar aversion to the destruction of cultural property. Polybius in the 2nd century BC states that to deface temples, statues, and such like must be regarded as an act of blind passion and insanity. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't really care too much about this. Definitely did not stop the Romans from completely flattening Carthage and salting the land to make sure nothing could grow there. And history of repetitive examples of the Romans just demolishing cultural property and not really caring too much about the destruction of it through collateral damage. Our good old friend, uh, Julius Caesar, ordered the destruction of Pompey's navy at Alexandria by burning. The collateral damage was part of the Great Library of Alexandria. Much of the knowledge contained therein was therefore lost forever. That's that's really sad. Yeah. Told you this episode was depressing. Mm. Roman civilization had some pretty advanced concepts of law, though. Um, and they wouldn't be too alien to us today. And this is expressed in how they would rob people by using a contract. This is like, it's like modern day robbery. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the, the difference is um, you 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 make them you make them sign a contract at pylon point, but right, um, okay. Titus Livius actually records a the, the, um a standard form uh, contract used to surrender to Rome. Wow. Um, and the words used are, do you surrender into my power and that of the people of Rome, yourselves, and the people of blank, insert the name of the people to uh, surrendering, 
your city, lands, water, boundaries, temples, sacred vessels, all things divine and human. Wow. So, yeah. It's pretty good drafting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just pretty good drafting. I'm looking at it. It's captured captured probably all the stuff that you really want. Yeah. (laughs) This particular surrender of all property has a long tradition. Uh, Rome itself was subject to such treatment in its history. Long before the genocide of Gaul, the Gauls themselves actually sacked Rome. And it was agreed that Rome would pay the Gauls 1,000 pounds of gold to fuck off. When the gold was being weighed, a Gaulish chieftain added his sword to the scales, so the Romans would have to give extra gold to make up the weight of the chieftain's sword. To When the Romans protested, the Gaulish chieftain simply said, woe to the conquered, five victis, as recorded by the Romans. This was uh, very much in accordance with the laws of war in force at the time, since the defeated had surrendered their right to the property. Of course, uh, the Romans made sure that all of this uh, seizing of property was legal, and when soldiers acted in a manner of and seized property unlawfully, the Romans actually returned it. So, during the Second Punic War, under the orders of Scipio Africanus, a fellow named Quintus Plaminius was put in charge of Locri as a proprietor. So it's basically a sort of magistrate. This meant that he was in charge of Roman forces in the area. Scipio then ran off somewhere else to do... Scipio Africanus things. He then left uh, Plaminius to manage the situation. Discipline broke down completely, and the Romans started fighting one another, raping and looting. In response, Plaminius orders that the tribunes, being mid-level Roman officers, he had them flogged. Because, you know, it's a Roman army. They they, they don't really understand that you, you don't get good soldiers by beating them. The, these men then attack Plaminius, mutilating his face and deposing him. Scipio hears about this and goes, what the fuck? He comes back to Locri and reinstates Plaminius and orders that the tribunes be sent to Rome for trial. Problem solved, you think? Uh, no, 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 it's not solved. <laughs> After Scipio Africanus heads off, Plaminius immediately has the two tribunes who snitch tortured to death. Plaminius then turns his anger towards the Locrians, who he believed tipped Scipio off to what was going on, and he turned his soldiers against the Locrians. These soldiers decided that they were going to loot a temple, which is a big no-no. You can't you can't destroy religious uh, stuff in, um, according to Romans because they're quite superstitious. The Locrians then sent envoys to Rome to complain about Plaminius. The Senate then had Plaminius arrested and had a trial, and it was found that the, the temple was looted unlawfully and therefore all the property seized from the temple had to be returned. Plaminius was imprisoned and he was uh, subsequently executed for plotting an escape. Finally, a good ending. Therefore, the Romans distinguished between legal and illegal looting. Uh, not sure how much comfort that gave to the vanquished, but I guess it's a law of war. You, know, you have to loot things legally. The legal looting, however, is still looting at a fucking enormous scale. So, Romans, good lawyers, good soldiers, absolutely shit at running an economy. How familiar are you with the Marian reforms of the Roman army? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Okay, so the Marian reforms essentially professionalized the Roman army. And... It did so by, among other things, allowing non-land-owning Romans to join the army. Why do you think that reform had to be made? 
That's a rhetoric. That's a rhetorical question, right? Okay. <laughs> because, because previously, all these Roman men had uh, had jobs working on farms, and Rome went off and started conquering people, taking a whole bunch of slaves, and you can't compete with with free. You can't compete with slaves in the, in the labor market. So all these jobless and angry Roman men uh, were becoming a bit of a problem for the Roman state. So you have to let non-land-owning people uh, join the army. Uh, this is, of course, a massive oversimplification. So yeah, the Romans already fucked their job market by uh, by importing so many slaves. And then they also... Then they then proceeded to wreck their own gold market by looting so much bloody gold. Emperor Trajan, he scuppered gold prices in the first century in the Roman Empire by robbing every single neighbor blind. While it is Vi Victis, woe to the conquered, it might also be woe to the conqueror because, you know, you've kind of screwed your own economy. Like other civilizations, the Romans divvied up the loot once they got back. A victorious general would have a parade known as a triumph and the loot will be distributed as an incentive for Roman soldiers to go campaigning. And after the victory, the Romans would exact tribute from the conquered. So after you are made to sign a contract, which uh, um, basically is robbery, the Romans would then run a protection racket. And this was all in accordance with the laws of war at the time. And if the Romans came for you, they were coming for your life, freedom, and all your money. All of the above. So we've actually gone through most of the episode by now. And a very small portion of this episode really is about arms control. There, the reason why it's small, because at this point in history, there really isn't that much to talk about, uh, about arms control. But however, there is evidence of the beginnings of uh, laws regarding arms control between countries. These days, we have treaties which impose legal limits on the numbers of nuclear warheads that people have. We also have nuclear non-proliferation treaties, which makes it illegal to assist other countries to get nukes. Many countries have also signed up to treaties banning all sorts of munitions like landmines and so on, cluster munitions and the like. Going back a little further in history, we had the Washington Naval Treaty, which tried to prevent a naval arms race like the one leading up to the First World War. In antiquity, there aren't really any such treaties where parties work together to reduce the number of arms, but rather it's more victors imposing arms controls on the vanquished. Uh, but before we go into such treaties, let's slowly, slightly roll back to uh, uh, non-proliferation. This is this bit's um, fairly speculative, but it's uh, it's it's a logical inference from the archaeological evidence. The arms trade—that's an old business—and people of antiquity would trade in weapons and armor. Early records indicate that most people who had copper did not trade it freely because it is a vital component of bronze, which could be used to make weapons. Something that has cropped up is that while bronze weapons were widely distributed at the time, early Iron Age weapons are far more concentrated within particular societies. A plausible inference to be drawn from this is that iron was controlled and guarded extremely closely by those who had it to prevent other societies from getting a hold of it. The suggestion here is, of course, that there was some sort of a consensus on the non-proliferation of iron weapons. That being said, I haven't found any written records of this, so it's pure speculation, but to my mind, this is a logical inference. In terms of arms control by way of treaties, by that I mean surrender documents, an example of this is uh, can be found in, as usual, the Bible. The book of Samuel states, 
Now there was no smith found throughout the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. This happened when the Philistines defeated the Israelites. Restrictions on the types of weapons which could be used also had no coherent law or custom, unlike with the offering of surrender terms. Though the use of projectile weapons was viewed as antithetical to honorable combat, which should be done through hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Euripides in the 5th century BCE stated, The bow is no proof of manly courage. No, your real man stands firm in the ranks and dares to face the gash the spear makes. You know what? I'd rather not be manly. <laughs> I'd very much prefer to uh, chuck a projectile from somewhere far away safely and preferably in the dark. Nice. <laughs> when, what did turn up in terms of arms limitation tends towards uh, the limitation of expensive kit, like ships. Thucydides suggested that the naval arms race in triremes, triremes? Uh, whatever, was one of the causes yeah. of the Peloponnesian War. This definitely doesn't repeat itself in history. Uh, looking at you, HMS Dreadnought and the German Empire, objectively speaking, states also try to restrict shipbuilding by targeting the trade in timber. When you restrict a strategic good like timber, it sounds a lot like sanctions. We definitely do that. Uh, we definitely still do that. The Romans concluded a peace treaty with Philip V of Macedon, restricting him from harvesting timber. The Romans also concluded a peace treaty with Rhodes, and Rhodes was barred from allowing anyone other than their own citizens to cut down trees to produce timber for shipbuilding. Basically, in antiquity, arms control treaties very much focused on big-ticket items like ships and targeted the materials vital for the production of those ships. We see similar controls today in the form of restrictions on trade and strategic goods. I'm pretty sure you can't just buy a block of uranium or plutonium on eBay. And with that, there's really not much else to say on this topic in antiquity, as very little was done in this field at this time. Okay, we've actually covered a hell of a lot of material today, and um, there's still a lot more to go through. And we've only gotten to the end of the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Eastern Roman Empire falls much later, and they've definitely got involved in quite a few wars. Uh, we've also been fighting wars since... Hmm, yeah, I don't know. There, there is a war going on somewhere in the world right now, actually. So Yeah, I couldn't tell you where, mate. <laughs> no idea where that war's happening. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, definitely not. Definitely not in Europe. No, no, no. The last yeah. European war was World War Two. We're, we're never going to see another European war. Not another land yeah. in Europe. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right now, we've come to the end of the episode, and uh, that is the history of the laws of war in antiquity. Do you have any thoughts, mate? I'm going to need um, whatever you were drinking. You're going to have to pass it over because, wow, that is some some real bleak stuff. And yeah. the sad reality is, is nothing's changed since then. But yeah, we'll, we try we'll, we'll, we'll to regulate it. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll get slightly better at not being the absolute worst. <laughs> yeah, um, we are, we're, we're fucking horrid. And with that, I'll probably let you sign us out. Um, and no doubt we'll be covering off um, a lot more gruesome tales of the law of war. Does it get any better? Or is it just is it just always as as terrible as it is now? Uh, it, it does get better because um, at some point in history, we finally decided that war criminals should be dangling at the end of a rope. Nice, nice. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I like that. Through the streets, through the streets. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah. Right, right. And with that, we will see you at the next episode. God damn it. Are you still here? Nice. Fine. Okay, cool. Fine. <laughs> fine, fine, fine. We'll give you our email address. It's it's in it's in it's in the description. You you can contact us there if you have any questions. Uh I will I will definitely um I'll definitely pay uh, my utmost attention to ignoring your emails. And with that, we'll see you in the next episode. See it.